Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Well, the Department of Interior is planning to open up national lands and monuments for commercial development. Uh, Also on at the table is raising park fees, the Department of the Interior, led by, of course, Ryan Zinke, uh, an appointee of the Trump administration. And here to talk about it is Whit Fosberg, president and chief executive officer of the Teddy Roosevelt Conservation Partnership, which is based in Washington. Uh, Whit, the Teddy Roosevelt Conservation Partnership is focused on preserving areas uh, for use uh, for hunting and fishing and has in the past welcomed the idea of opening up perhaps some more lands. What's been the response to the latest proposals? Uh, Lisa, I think the response has been pretty negative in general. I think the yeah, we're in favor of opening up lands for you know, hunting and fishing, but almost all the lands are already open for hunting and fishing. What we really care about is making sure those lands are well managed and that they're, you know, Good water quality, good wildlife habitat, good connectivity for migration corridors, so and good access to get on them. And I think what concerns us is this proposal to open up a lot of these areas uh, to potentially development and to shrink monuments is that directly, I think, impacts the you know, fish and wildlife and fish and wildlife habitat. And that's the real concern. Uh, you know what? I just wonder if we could start with maybe an example, because I know that the president has plans to visit Utah. That's uh, in December, and it uh, affects the uh, the Bear Ears and the Grand Staircase Escalante National Monuments. Maybe just use that as an example for what you believe is going on and what is likely to happen. And if you can weave in anything to do with the local reaction, that would be useful. Yeah, Pim. Um, I'm going to take a step back. The Antiquities Act was created under Theodore Roosevelt. He used that to set aside about 230 million acres of you know, lands across the country um, you know, he's, during his presidency. And things like the Antiquities Act is the special privilege of the president to sort of add additional protections onto existing public lands. For example, the Grand Canyon National Park was created through an act through the Antiquities Act. And what, you know, presidents have used a Democrat-Republican ever since Roosevelt's time to protect key areas, uh, key areas archaeologically, historically, you know, fish and wildlife, scientifically. Now, the controversy that we're talking about right now involves several non, you know, monuments that were created since the 1990s under Clinton and, uh, you know, both Bushes and then Obama. And Bear's Ears, you were talking about, is about a million and a half acre monument in Utah that is incredibly important to local tribal interests, but also is spectacularly beautiful, has great you know, wildlife habitat. And the you know, designation that was created was controversial in the locals, uh, some of the locals who you know, felt that it was, quote, locking up land. Uh, broadly, you know, the outdoor recreation community supports monument designation. The hunting and fishing community can support it when hunting and fishing are taken care of. And in Bears Ears, you know, hunting is provided for in the designation of the monument. So the controversy is whether the president has the authority to go in and reduce or rescind a monument. It has never been done before on a major scale. And I think there are a lot of scholars who feel that it's not legal. Now, Congress clearly has the authority. It wanted to go in and change the monument designation to a national park or get rid of all altogether. It can do that. That's not questioned. 
Can we talk about what the interests are, who they are, who want to develop these particular areas? Is this uh, land that is expected to have oil under it? Is it for minerals? Is it for uh, developing homes? I mean, I've been out there and it's uh, it's quite hot. There is not a lot of water. It's uh, not uh, very populated. So so who are these developers? Yeah, well, it's not people who are going to build homes because it stays, <laughs> whether it's you know rescinded from a national monument or reduced to national monument, it's still public land, so you can't go in and build a house on it. That would require an act of Congress to you know get rid of that as public lands altogether. But what it would do is potentially open the area to oil and gas development, mineral development, more you know, off-road vehicle use, you know, things like that, and which have you know, fairly significant potential impacts. I mean, one of the issues here at Bears Ears is you know, sort of very well-known archaeological areas for Indians and the Native Americans. And what has been going on has been you know, looting for years, going in and looting all those you know, you know, the sacred artifacts. And in fact, even the FBI broke up a looting ring back in around 2009. So this is big business. So obviously the criminals are all for you know, roping it back up. But also there's a, it's an ideological issue. It's the government from D.C. telling the locals what they can't do on their land. Now, at the same time, I view it a little bit differently in that the government in D.C. protecting that land for future generations, which is, by the way, really good for the outdoor recreation economy in Utah and other places. You know, what I think of hunting and fishing uh, as part of sort of the, uh, frankly, GOP uh, platform in some ways because of the Second Amendment and the idea of being able to go out there and sustain oneself. And I'm just wondering, you know, are you surprised that you find yourself in stark disagreement with the actions of the current administration? Yeah, you know, it's conservation since Roosevelt's time has really been a nonpartisan issue. You've had Democrat, Republican presidents do great things for conservation, you know, ever since Roosevelt. In fact, you could argue that Richard Nixon is since Roosevelt, you know, been the most environmentally progressive president. Not that he really cared about, you know, conservation, but he saw it as a way to heal the nation, you know, from the race riots, from, you know, the Vietnam War, all those issues. We released a poll earlier this year at the Western Governors Association, and folks can see it at www.trcp.org. That interviewed a Republican pollster, went out and talked to a thousand sportsmen around the nation on attitudes toward conservation, public lands, conservation funding, clean water. And there is basically no difference between Republicans, Democrats, independents, Trump voters, Clinton voters. I mean, conservation always has been a nonpartisan issue, and it should be. But politicians tend to try to frame it as a partisan issue or to create you know, cleavages in the community by claiming, gee, this is an attempt to lock something up or these people really want to take your guns away. I mean, that's all nonsense. I mean, these are common sense conservation actions that enjoy broad you know, bipartisan support. Uh, as you mentioned politicians, I'm wondering if you could just quickly tell the story of Jason Chaffetz uh, to maybe illustrate what happens uh, when politicians uh, stray from what their uh, supporters really want to have happen. Yeah, Pim. Jason Chaffetz, for those who don't know who he is, was a Utah Republican who's now left Congress, but was in the Republican leadership um, and you know a pretty virulent anti-conservationist in a lot of ways, as much of the Utah delegation is. He introduced a bill, H.R. 621, that would have sold off 3.3 million acres of public lands to reduce the deficit. And I guess he thought it was good politics. It's, you know, selling off public lands as a part of the Republican national platform. But I think eventually sportsmen got pretty sick and tired of, you know, seeing the places they go and hunt and fish, you know, sold off. 
and having that conservation heritage you know, sort of given away. And so what happened was that a series of rallies happened across the country, but also in Utah and his district. You know, folks really came at him online, and you know, it wasn't the traditional Birkenstock-wearing hippies. These were guys in camo and you know, very traditional conservative folks. And you know, Chafis went online, went put a post on Instagram, you know, dressed in camo, holding this hunting dog, basically apologizing and withdrawing his bill. And that was really the first instance where the community has risen up on an issue that didn't involve Second Amendment to really push back on hardcore anti-conservation actions. Thanks very much, uh, Whit Fosberg, uh, giving us an overview of uh, the environmental issues that uh, continue to dog not only Ryan Zinke, the head of the Interior Department, but uh, politicians as well. Whit Fosberg is the president and the chief executive of the Teddy Roosevelt Conservation Partnership. They're based in Washington, D.C. Since we're talking about Russia, we're talking about the election today, and we're talking about all sorts of rumors, it's time to talk about fake news, in particular Facebook's strategy to stamp it out. And here joining us is Sarah Fryer, a technology reporter uh, coming to us uh, from Bloomberg News in San Francisco. Uh, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. You wrote this great story taking a look at how Facebook was grappling with the sort of fake news uh, that they've been accused of fostering and disseminating Widely. Can you tell us first just what the uh, efforts have been like on Facebook's behalf? Why don't we just start there? So Facebook doesn't want to be an arbiter of what is true or false itself. It doesn't want to hire people to fact check itself. It's outsourcing this effort to five separate third parties that get this dashboard of, you know, once they log into their personal Facebook accounts, um, they have access to this dashboard of basically all of the worst of the worst on the internet. And they have to go through and mark it true or false. Now, it sounds like that would be a good system, except for the fact that there's so many duplicate stories, like, you know, something on one site, uh, gets debunked, but by the time they debunk it, it's on 20 other sites. Uh, and it, there's not a lot of scale to the operation. I mean, these are, are firms that they get paid not at all or or up to $100,000 a year, which is not that much um, for the amount of, of effort of this problem. And um, it's just a, a scale of a problem that's getting more international, Governments around the world are starting to realize how they can use Facebook to manipulate. And it's just a fraction of the overall. One person told me that they estimate 100 stories a month are perhaps uh, debunked. Sarah, uh, can we just focus just for a second on the company itself? The company, Facebook, makes money by selling digital advertisement, right? I mean, that's the bread and butter. They've got Instagram, they've got WhatsApp, they've got Facebook Messenger, and then, of course, Facebook itself. This is a company that, what, has 38% net margins. They did $33 billion in sales last year. They put $12 billion in their pocket. That is an amazing number for a company of this size. Is that correct? Absolutely. So, are investors really worried about whether there's an investigation into fake news? Maybe they're just worried that somehow the Congress or government officials will get involved and constrain their ability to sell advertising. But other than that, investors don't seem to be bothered by this. 
No, I mean, you can tell the stock hasn't really reacted to a lot of this. Um, the company, the advertising systems of the company, I mean, they're not widely affected by whatever Facebook does for fake news. But you are correct that if the perception of Facebook changes in uh, in Washington or even in the EU, it could cause a lot of a lot of headaches for Facebook in terms of how they monitor their platform and what they have to invest in and how they have to comply with regulation. So it's in Facebook's best interest to look very proactive and self-regulate enough that Congress decides that they don't have to. So now their efforts with self-regulating on ads, which they announced next week, they're going to add a lot more transparency for political advertising even though it went way beyond what Zuckerberg initially said he would do after the uh, Russia ads were revealed, it still wasn't enough for a lot of people on Congressional Hill. So, Sarah, let's talk a little bit specifically about the details of what Facebook's efforts have been. They contracted for one year with PolitiFact, Snopes, ABC News, FactCheck.org, and the Associated Press uh, to sniff out fake news. Uh, They are hiring individuals to scour all the different sites. You know, how controversial is this just in terms of defining what fake news is? I mean, it's been used as a political weapon. Uh, You know, a lot of people, if they don't like something, they call it fake news. Has that become an issue for Facebook? I think it is an issue for Facebook. I mean, one of the new partners that they've added is, um, you know, self-described conservative magazine, according to our sources, the Weekly Standard. And so that sort of gets into the territory. Certainly, pe- some people think that Snopes is is an arm of the left wing, and some people think it's really right wing. Um, but what these sites are attempting to do on Facebook, at least, is stamp out the worst of the worst, like the stuff that is just so obviously not true that it's not a matter of opinion. Right. Um, but when you get into the very manipulative reports, those are things that are not yet even treated by Facebook system. Real quick, uh, how much is Facebook spending on these efforts? Well, there are the, you know, 100K a year for these groups that they, and they plan to extend the contract. I don't know what they'll be if they'll be raising that amount. Um, but there are some efforts that they are investing in in universities sort of as a philanthropic thing to try to help uh, news literacy efforts, which they think will will help solve this problem, too, from a different angle. Honestly, not not a lot of monetary investment, but certainly in the communications and public relations side, we are getting a lot. Thanks very much. Sarah Fryer is a Bloomberg Technology reporter, giving us her thoughts and uh, bringing us up to date on uh, Facebook, stumbling uh, with its strategy to uh, get rid of fake news. Shares of uh, Facebook are down about uh, 16 cents right now, though they are up uh, 4% over the last month. General Electric has had a terrible year. It has lost about one-third of its overall market value, equal to about $100 billion, the same market cap we were noting before, as Bitcoin now enjoys. Uh, Brooke Sutherland joins us now. She's a mergers and acquisitions columnist for Bloomberg Gadfly. You can find her columns at Bloomberg.com slash Gadfly or NI Gadfly on the Bloomberg. Uh, Brooke, you make an argument here that it suddenly became much easier to imagine a wholesale breakup of General Electric. Can you explain what that would look like and why that looks much more likely now? 
Sure. So the idea of a GE breakup has been around for years. And I think, you know, it has been talked about just in this sort of rush among industrial companies to become simpler. And GE has done a lot of streamlining. It got rid of GE Capital, got rid of appliances, it got rid of, you know, its water business, but it's still just sort of this behemoth. And the reasons against a breakup were that you had sort of these financial complexities that you would have a huge tax bill from selling some of these businesses, not to mention the conglomerate as a whole, gets tax benefits. It pays a tax rate in the low single digits, which is kind of nuts for a U.S. company. Um, But then when we're sort of in this period of, I don't know if you want to call it desperation or downward spiral or, you know, just sort of a serious crisis at GE right now, that maybe it is time to sort of think a little bit more radically and whether this sort of drastic breakup that everyone has sort of said maybe doesn't make as much sense should actually be considered. If you're going to reset earnings and you're going to really rethink what this company is, do you want to be this giant sprawling conglomerate still? I wonder, I wonder if Nelson, I'm sure Nelson Peltz of Tryon Fund Management has uh, some views on this. Uh, they're the activist investor that have been pushing for changes at General Electric. I wonder if you could just sort of detail for us, what are the different parts of, of GE so that we understand at least what is on the table uh, in terms of the company's makeup, right? They got the power and aviation business, right? Jet yes. engines as well as turbines. Then they've got industrial sales, uh, which... So then, uh, yeah, I mean, go ahead. The main businesses are power, aviation, healthcare, transportation, and then they have sort of these smaller energy connections slash lighting businesses. And on the face of it, those don't necessarily have a lot to do to get right. With building each locomotives other. may not necessarily combine with uh, healthcare, machines right? Yeah, and, yeah, exactly. But so, I mean, what GE has said is okay. Well, we get benefits from being a conglomerate. So, an, a good example of this is their digital effort. They're trying to make their machinery run more efficiently and sell software to other industrial companies so that they can be more productive. So GE has said, well, we borrow technologies from the different businesses and sort of share that expertise. And as a whole, we have more resources to put toward this digital investment than our individual businesses Every would. time you hear the word digital <laughs> in any kind of you know corporate strategy report, that's got to kind of just make you think, well, what were you doing before, right? Yeah, I mean, I do think that this has been sort of a new wave in industrials, and GE certainly does need to be investing in digital. But the point I make in my article is that they're sort of changing the way that they view digital and that maybe they're sort of rethinking how exactly they want to play in this field. And then that raises the prospect of really whether you do still need to be this conglomerate. Well, let's talk about what would happen to the parts of General Electric should they decide to break it up. Would it mean selling the different components to other big corporations that specialize in those areas? Or does it mean spinning them all off into their own entities? I think you could do it both ways. I think that it's sort of crazy to think about selling GE for parts, but there are, you know, perhaps companies out there that would be interested in it, Um, specifically the aviation piece. uh, There's already been sort of speculation about whether GE aviation should combine with Honeywell Aerospace. Um, We've seen United Technologies buying Rockwell Collins and getting a lot bigger in the field of aerospace parts. So there could be some appetite for that. You know, maybe you could do some sort of joint venture with power. Maybe some of these could stand alone. You know, it's crazy to think about. But if we're really thinking about rethinking what GE is, then maybe we should be having some of these conversations because, you know, in its disastrous third quarter earnings report earlier this month, what happened 
was the power and oil and gas business were just disastrous and totally dragged down the numbers. But the aviation and healthcare business were actually doing really well. And they're growing and there are sort of opportunities there. So the longer you sort of continue in this structure, you're going to still have that dynamic. And so do you need to maybe think about, should we just be an aviation and healthcare company or just an aviation company or, or whatever it is? Well, what they everyone should do is they should just read your column. Thank you very much. Uh, Brooke Sutherland is our Bloomberg Gadfly columnist covering the industrial space and shares a GE are down about 1% right now. There was a headline on the Bloomberg over the weekend that read, Bond traders confront fears in week that may change everything. They were talking, of course, about the numerous bits of information act- actions that are coming up this week that could potentially uh, shift the tone of markets dramatically. And uh, here to give us his take on what to pay the most attention to among all of this information is Mike Holland, chairman of Holland and Company, uh, which is based in New York. And just by way of background, Mike uh, had spent a a long time at J.P. Morgan managing both equity and fixed income assets for major institutional clients, former CEO of First Boston Asset Management, as well as chairman of Solomon Brothers Asset Management. So a lot of experience uh, under your belt, Mike. Uh, This week, we're looking at a possible tax plan. We're looking at the indictment of Paul Manafort. We're looking at a possible nomination of a new Fed chair. What are you looking at? Looking at as having the most potential to truly royal markets uh, to keep the markets fr- to, to, to change your question, Lisa. What I'll do is say what what would keep the markets from staying unroyaled, if you will, with all the bad headlines over the last several months is continuing economic growth. I think uh, to to get to your question specifically, the one thing that could really uh, knock the pins out from underneath this market would be uh, a a clear message that the tax reform package is going to be uh, scuttled. I think that's the the one thing. The markets are are absolutely ignoring a lot of the uh, other stuff that that might in other markets have have said, uh, let's let's take the market down a little bit here. Uh, In this market, nothing has seemed to face it because the economic numbers have been very good. And people believe that Despite all the craziness in Washington, there will be a, a tax package. If there is none, that would that would be my my biggest uh, roiling factor. Okay, so so please build on that, Mike. Which sectors do you think would sell off the most? Should we get some clear sense uh, that tax reform, tax cuts are off the table? Well, I think it would be across the board, Lisa. But I think uh, probably the the ones that have gone up the most would go would go down the most. That's usually what what happens in a market reaction like that. It's 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 pretty uh, it's it, it's pretty symmetrical. Hey, Mike. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, Mike. I, I just got this image you, of you though uh, using your Apple uh, iPhone. I know you've probably already gotten line for the new Apple, uh, the you know the iPhone 10. You got that. You're wearing your Under Armour outfit right now because you had way too many Oreos over the weekend, along with that Ritz cracker chaser, and wow. you and you paid for it all using your Mastercard. So now we've completed the earnings report for this week. Plus, you get the Friday non-farm payrolls for October. What's not to like about a market? Apple, come on. Apple is up more than 44% so far this year. We'll get the Mondelez results today after the close. Under Armour uh, also tomorrow, uh, MasterCard tomorrow. What's not to like about this market? Come on. 
Tim, you know me too well, and thank you for answering your question. It was a, it was a, uh, I, I think starting with the, the Apple, you're absolutely right. On Friday, I did get in line, uh, paid, paid, uh, uh, paid up front for the, uh, uh, for the honor of, of buying this very expensive phone. But I actually believe that, that, uh, I heard something on Friday out of Apple, Tim, that is something I, they talked about the pre-orders in, in the, more, off the charts. With yes. Quote. I mean, this is, I've never heard a company of Apple size Ever say anything quite like that? And this morning, just in the last hour or two, it's it's important. Uh, I haven't heard it reported too much elsewhere uh, that the uh, five to six week delay or, or, or shipment period that that uh, those of us who didn't get in line right at three three a.m. in the morning uh, were, were told would would be the normal. You know, so first or second week in December. Apparently, that not not only has not budged, but and will is not lengthening despite the uh, off the charts orders. But in fact, the the, um, uh, the comment has come out of Apple that they have told the Taiwan manufacturers who supply the important parts to double capacity because of the orders. So th- these are all very important uh, data points for, you know, you and I have been in this market long enough. When everything sounds so good about a company like Apple, we get very concerned that uh, things are about to go bump in the night. Uh, but, but at least today, for all the facts that we have, uh, the story with Apple continues to get a little bit better, despite the fact the stock is up 44%. Mike, did you really get in line at 3 a.m.? No, I no, I didn't. <laughs> wow, that was like wow. That I the whole new image of you uh, springs up. But you had to, you had it was midnight uh, California time. You had to, you could pre-order on your phone, and um, I just later in the day actually you know what I did? I went to Grand Central to the Apple store around noontime and just had them help me uh, pre-order it. So, uh, Mike, you know a few great tech companies, uh, an economy does not make, right? So we are getting economic data, and it has been better than a lot of analysts have been expecting. But this is messy data, right? Because it's being clouded by the the hurricanes and the aftermath. And I have to wonder, you know, we are seeing a flattening yield curve that continues to flatten. You know, what are bond traders seeing that stock traders just aren't? Well, I think you, you, you put your you put your finger on a very important uh, additional data point, Lisa, and that was the the uh, uh, GDP number that just came out. A lot of uh, forecasters were saying that that 2.8, 2.9 GDP thing was going to be harmed dramatically by the by the effects of the hurricane, which were were disastrous. And yet we came in with a, a, a very surprising, to me anyhow, three percent number. Many people said that you weren't going to see a three handle on this thing. I think I think the most important point for concern. Of of the uh, bond trading community, Lisa, would be uh, an article in today's Wall Street Journal reflects you know, the possibility that things are so good we're beginning to get some inflation. Now, that inflation has been uh, predicted by many bearish people over the last uh, 10 years and, and hasn't occurred, but at some point it probably will happen. That would be, that would be the, the, the most significant thing for bond traders to figure out how not to lose money at that point. Hey, uh, Mike. Mike, do you think that bond traders actually buy anything from Amazon and get their products shipped by FedEx and UPS because they both raise their rates and also Netflix raised their subscription rate 10%? I mean, they may be small and anecdotal, but I mean, this is stuff that people pay for. 
that's how these things start, Pim. You, you and I have been through these markets before, and there's no question that, that uh, people are beginning to have trouble finding people to work in new job openings in their companies. It means that they're paying up. I was at a board meeting last week. Uh, uh, people are, are adjusted. We've, we've simply, at this company, adjusted uh, the current wage uh, picture uh, up. I think that's going on, but it's uh, right now it's anecdotal. It's not hit. It has, it's not hit the facts yet. But I think it'll hit the facts sometime in our lifetime, and it may be sooner than we think. Who knows? Thanks very much, uh, Mike Holland of uh, Mike Holland and Company. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.